Up until now, the coolest thing that has ever happened on the Resilient Journey podcast is this smooth jazz opening. That's about to change as I'm joined by one smooth cat. Jim Preen is my guest today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 60 as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and today I'm joined by independent crisis communications consultant and former ABC News reporter Jim Preen. Listen as Jim and I talk about the current state of affairs in the UK, poor communications from leaders, how to be effective when running crisis management exercises, the value of playbooks versus plans, and best practices when hosting a webinar or large online event. Jim shares some details of his battle with prostate cancer, and whatever you do, stick around to the end for a very special treat. Hello, I'm Lisa Jones, co-founder of the Resilience Think Tank. In 2021, six professionals with a passion for resiliency came together to find ways to use our industry experience to provide a place where business continuity professionals could share their insight, seek help with their programs, and promote overall growth in our profession. On that day, the Resilience Think Tank was born. It's our one-year anniversary, and we are delighted by your support and encouraging feedback. We hope you will join our journey by becoming a part of the community. Follow Resilience Think Tank on LinkedIn, Twitter, and YouTube as we celebrate this milestone. Also check out ResilienceThinkTank.com to discover great insights shared by our Resilience Think Tank community. Thank you for your support, and stay tuned as we continue to be an ally for risk and resilience professionals and champions for the teams of one. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you. Before we get into some very interesting stuff here, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, and thanks very much for inviting me on your podcast, Mike. I'm delighted to be doing this. Um, yeah, I'll keep this pretty short, but I've been, I, formerly I was a journalist for many years working for ABC News, the American network, and they used to send me off chasing Marines around the world, which was, <laughs> which was at, you know, at certain points, deeply interesting and deeply scary at certain points as well. I was in Somalia. I did a lot of time in Sarajevo during the Bosnian War. I covered the Concord crash, all, all kinds of stuff. This is quite a few this is 20 years ago now and I sort of made the change about the time of the millennium to um, to go into sort of crisis communications and crisis management and that's what I've been doing ever since working with agencies um, most of the time but actually since January of this year um, I'm now freelance or a consultant or however you want to describe me and I largely I run crisis simulation exercises I write crisis plans um, I run um, crisis webinars, all, all that kind of stuff. There are a whole sort of panoply of, of bits and pieces that I do. But that's essentially who I am and what I do. I guess I always think of myself as crisis comms, but I do sort of a fair bit of crisis management stuff as well now. Well, yeah, I mean, crisis comms is such a big part of crisis management. And do you find uh, that it's hugely beneficial to leverage your reporting background when it comes to crisis communications? Because well, there's a well, number I... of you that are like that. 
Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, I'm a little bit hesitant to this because it is quite a long time ago that I did that. But I certainly I certainly do. I mean, on occasions I do media training for people and then I particularly can leverage my my skills, um, you know, my former skills or my current skills as a journalist, because I know what sort of questions journalists are going to ask. So sort of in media training, it's quite useful. And also, I mean, that goes I mean, what I also do. Uh, so I don't wish to sell myself too much here. But what I also do for the crisis exercises that I run, I find it really beneficial to have little news reports within the exercises. And simply because I can do it, I, I tend to front these news, news reports. Um, but I find at the beginning of an exercise, particularly, and sort of if you divide your exercise into sections, I quite like to start, if not each section, but at least a couple of the sections with a news report. Because what I find interesting about that, it means people put their phones down and actually concentrate on the screen and just kind of get locked into what the scenario is. So I do find sort of presenting uh, news reports and so forth quite useful for exercises. And obviously, that's something I got from, you know, when I used to be a journalist. So yes, to some extent, I do. Uh, when it comes to crisis management, perhaps not quite so much. But as you point out, crisis communications is so much part of crisis management these days, you know, reputational issues and so forth, that I guess, yeah, unwittingly, I suppose in some instances, I do uh, leverage my former skills. You, you talked about using news reports as part of your exercises, and you're in London, and uh, <laughs> you certainly have no shortage of news right now. I mean, the whole world is reacting to uh, Prime Minister th Liz Truss stepping down. I think, I think reacting is quite a kind word on your <laughs> part, Mark. I think possibly the word that you were actually searching for was laughing their heads off at the ridiculous nature of um, British politics. But what I, what I would say about that, and I, actually I don't want to get into politics, I always try and stay away, but it is such a ridiculous situation we're in, and I know that the world is laughing at us. But if I can just make one comment, you know, I referred back a moment ago about sort of doing media training and actually I don't do I used to do quite a bit of it. actually I don't do that much of it these days but I think our politicians are going to put all media trainers out of a job because people are going to think well these people must be media trained and yet they can barely communicate and I think the, the problem is that our current or former Prime Minister Liz Truss is, is one of the worst communicators I've ever heard. And I think because she is so poor at thinking on her feet, that all she does, you know, I'm sure most of our, your listeners will know about media training to some extent, that, you know, you have to try and anticipate the questions, you have to try and anticipate what the answers you might give to the tough questions. But also, the most one of the most important things is in any interview, what you do is you figure out the three or four messages that you want to get across right and so the way you do that is hopefully you know you're asked a question you do your best to answer the question and then you bridge you use some little form of words to bridge to your key message but what's happened with our recent politicians is they forget about the first bit so there is absolutely no mention they don't even attempt to answer the question that's put at them <laughs> all they do is they think oh I've got like six talking points here now which one of those talking points 
words can I use to sort of answer the question? And then it then becomes this sort of mad kind of robotic, uh, well, it's not really a conversation. It's just a sort of re robotic response to a question, which doesn't include an answer to that question at all. So it, yeah. it looks frankly mad. And just sorry, I, I know I'm rabbiting on, but it is my way. Um, just one <laughs> other thing that made me laugh, which maybe listeners might quite like is that the one thing you also teach when you teach media training is if it's a tough interview and the interviewer says something pejorative about you do not use those words in your answer right um, uh, you know i mean i think we all that's another one we all know you know if someone says you know you're hopeless you couldn't run a raffle you know you know <laughs> the way you don't answer that is by saying yes we could run a raffle because then everyone thinks you can't run a raffle but <laughs> what happened in our houses of parliament the other day i'm not going to get into names because people your audience won't won't be interested in that but one of the an opposition MP uh, asked before uh, Mrs. Truss um, uh, uh, resigned was uh, she was meant to be in the Houses of Parliament, but she wasn't there. So an opposition MP said, where is the prime minister? Is she hiding under a desk, hoping it's all going to go away? And the answer, the, the, the person who was standing in for the prime minister said, no, she's not hiding under a desk, which is exactly the thing you're not meant to say, because what are we all thinking? Oh, she is hiding under a desk. And of course, the newspapers just use that line. You know, the next day it was everywhere. Is she hiding under a desk? Anyway, there you go. That's enough about that. But it, well, it just... No, that's okay. It's very interesting. I mean, it, the worst, even worse than that is when you agree with that statement. So, Jim, is this your worst nightmare? Uh, yeah, this is my worst nightmare. Or you don't even have to repeat it just yeah. to say yes. Now yeah. the headline of that is going to be Jim Preen says interview with Mark <laughs> it's Hoffman. It's my worst nightmare. Worst being, nightmare. Yeah. being interviewed by Mark Hoffman is my worst, worst nightmare, obviously. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I appreciate that. That is uh, some good insight. Um, and by the way, the UK does not have the monopoly on poor leadership and certainly not poor communication uh, uh, we do from... now, Mark. We do. We absolutely for for, the, for this moment. We absolutely. I can't think of any other country who is in such a wreckage. But but also, it's not just that. Oh God, we're getting into politics. But you know, I think the one thing Britain may be boring, but we were always sort of quite competent in a sort of way. We sort of got things done. Maybe not always in a very nice way, but we we got things done. But now we just seem utterly incompetent. But let's move this on, Mark. I don't want to get. I don't want to get bogged down in these politics. You uh, you talk about in addition to the media work uh, running crisis management exercises. Yeah, yeah. What are you seeing uh, as far as maybe the uh, evolution or the maturity of crisis management exercises as as we head into the end now of 2022? Okay, I mean I I, I mean I don't know if people will agree with this or if if, if other people are seeing this, but what, let me just tell you how I tend to run exercises and the sort of changes that I've seen. I mean, I have been doing this for almost 20 years now. And certainly when I first started, actually up until very recently, and I still do this on occasions now, but the way I used to run exercises was that you have the, the participants, the players in the exercises, and that might be one team 
or it might be the senior management team and the comms team or you know there might be a tactical team it depends depends who it is and really what i'm talking about here is how do you get the exercise information to the participants in the exercise right how if you've got a cyber attack how do you let them know that um uh, that that they're undergoing a cyber attack because you know information that you need to get to the participants comes from very different sources it might come from the police it might come from the firm's IT department it mm -hmm. might come from you know uh, customers or suppliers or whatever it is so in any exercise there's a chunks chunks of information you want to get to the players and in the day, days gone by we always used to have what was called a scenario cell or exercise control you would have, you know, you would have a room of uh, maybe a separate room away from the participants in the exercise of maybe between six and ten people sat in the in the scenario cell room, and in front of them they would have a script. I mean, it really would be like an Excel spreadsheet, but but a script. And particular pieces of information would need to be phoned in at particular times. So a police officer, you know, someone might have to adopt the role of a police officer and phone, telling them something about a terror attack or whatever it might be or mm -hmm. the firm's IT department might have an update about a cyber attack and they would sit there and they would phone those pieces of information in and that was very much the majority of the exercises that I ran were always like that and things have changed a bit I think when there's certainly my thinking on it has changed a bit because now I mean and the two reasons why I think it's changed is that a that's a very expensive way of running an exercise and firms mm -hmm. seem less inclined to pay top dollar for exercises although they should um, but they don't seem so inclined to do it now so the way i would typically get information to participants in in an exercise would be on powerpoint slides and you would get chunks of information so you would get a, a start state you would get an it update you might get a news as i was saying you might get a a news report and these are put into the players because my thinking is that actually getting the information to the players is not the most important thing i think the most important thing in an exercise is what they do with that information how do they so, respond yeah Exactly, and 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 this is a couple. Sorry, a couple more things on this. So, so no, actually, don't be sorry. It, you just take all the time you need. Go right ahead. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. Um, I mean, although it might sound re more real for someone to assume the role of a police officer phoning in and telling them some, some telling them that something has happened, I'm not sure how much learning you get from that because we're all on the phone, on emails, and WhatsApp or whatever it is all day. We're used to uh, you know assimilating information, but it's the it's the you know it's what they do with the information that's important and this is where it's changed really i ran last week i ran an exercise for a high street bank and it was really quite interesting and, and i got the information to the participants using sort of powerpoint slides and chunks of information which i also printed out so they could see it and the exercise was divided i think into four or five sessions um and but what happened was so the the bank had three teams playing three separate teams playing and the pe here's the change is that in days gone by you know the people would all be sat around the table running the exercise you know the participants in the exercise would be sat around a table figuring out maybe dividing into teams maybe staying in one team but now loads of people join online 
So we had three teams who were playing. And once the information was got to them, then they would all break off and they would all go and stand in front of a whiteboard discussing what they were doing. But here's the change. On the whiteboard was somebody's phone. And on one team, there were like 10 people who joined on the phone. All right. And they were talking. You could see that. I could see them. Um, you know, they were talking with the people in the room. So it was an ongoing conversation. Now, that's what I think you need to replicate, because that's how we deal with stuff these days. The idea that you're going to have everybody in the room in a crisis is for the birds. It's not going to happen. So I think the important thing to replicate is not so much how you get the information to the people. It's what they do with the information once they've got it. And that is going to involve a lot of people joining online. Let me ask you a question. When you run these exercises, what are you seeing as far as people referencing a specific crisis management plan? Is is there a plan that they're referencing and uh, who around the table has it? Kind of tell me a little bit about that. Oh, God, it's a tricky one, Mark. I, you're not going to like what I'm going to say about this. <laughs> It's nobody ever reads the bloody plans, do they? Sorry, I shouldn't swear. <laughs> um, people don't read their plans. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I mean, that's I mean, this is a whole other topic in a way. But I mean, one, one actually somebody said I, I was at an exercise up in Chester on Thursday uh, for a, um, uh, a retail group. Um, and one of the guys said, well, you never read your plans, do you? And of course, one of the exercise objectives as part of this exercise was to, you know, update our plans, you know, given any learnings that are made during an exercise. I mean, so, I mean, I think people do read the plans, but they don't read them as much as you think. And that's why I'm quite a fan. I don't know what you think about this, Mark. I'm quite a fan of playbooks these days, which tend to be, you know, just you say you would have a terror playbook or a cyber playbook and everything about them, you know, checklists and names and so forth. Whereas if you have a giant sort of BC plan, I don't want to, I know there's going to be people um, who don't like this because, you know, they, they write BC plans. So they, they do have a role. They absolutely do because they should, you know, a BC plan, as we know, should flesh out your response to any, any scenario. And they can hold really, really useful information that just, they tend to be quite large. And people quite often find them a bit bewildering and don't go to them in, in, in a crisis where I, I think a playbook, a short playbook of just a few pages, particularly when it's specific, it's aimed at a particular crisis, can, can be useful. Uh, I like the idea of specifically aimed playbooks. Uh, it does make a lot of sense. I spent a lot of time in my career arguing against having specific scenarios in business continuity plans. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm reconciling that a little bit, but it's uh, it's interesting. And where I like the playbook is you're right. I mean, I've, I've run exercises where I look around the table and literally nobody has their plan. And then I've started to get to the point where I realize that you're sort of tr uh, training people on the use of their plan. And if they're done properly and if they're done, um, effectively enough and, and and specifically tailored enough that you're teaching principles really rather than teaching them the plan. Yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, there's going to be, I mean, there are going to be useful things there. I mean, one thing that I particularly like in a, you know, in a comms plan, are sort of boilerplate messages, you know, pre-scripted messages, not that you would, not that you would ever use one exactly as it is in your plan. But what I like about it is that, you know, at least then the comms team are not starting from a blank piece of paper. They've got something to work from. And similarly, the other thing I like in a plan is just to checklist you know it's like a pilot flying a plane they know how to fly a plane it just keeps them on you know keeps them on the rails as it were they they check that they're doing the right the right things and having like meeting agendas you know really good practical stuff like that i think can be can be very beneficial in in, in a crisis one of the things that's happening right now all across the uk is rail strikes and now i understand why because you have you have people flying their planes on the rails jim you you mixed a metaphor there we can't do that <laughs> well yeah <laughs> i'm sure i can mix my metaphors better than anyone uh, that's all right that's good you're a very good communicator and you use a lot of different mediums to communicate your crisis management message yeah. i've been a guest a couple of times on different webinars that you've done and for folks who are listening who have never been on a Jim Preen webinar, you need to check them out. One of the things that you do very effectively at the very beginning is you always ask where people are calling in from. Or dialing oh, yes, in from. Yes, yeah. And we get people yeah. from all over, don't you? I know. I mean, it's just a bit of fun, really, but it's just to try and get people engaged. I think I think the important thing with running a webinar is just pe- making people feel involved. Otherwise, they start backing away or they're off to their phone or they're checking their emails. So I think if you're running a webinar of any sort, but particularly a crisis sort, is get people involved. So the first thing you can do is just say, where are you calling from? And yeah, I have regular people from Chile and India and all kinds of places, even Canada. Mark, you're Self, in fact. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> um, which which is really nice. But the other thing I do, and if anybody is thinking about running a, a simulation, or a, a, I mean, I, this really came from lockdown during during COVID, where it was you know impossible to meet. So we all were thinking, how can we run webinars? You know, or how can we run simulations? And the way to do that was webinars, and that pro- pro- provided some challenges. But once again, it was you know the way as I've already described with the way I run regular exercises you put together blocks of information which you feed to the participants but the difference with a webinar which i, I mean I, I i really didn't get this to begin with but i soon did is the the thing that is really useful on a piece of webinar software are the polls so you can poll you get people to vote on things and once again the important thing with this is that you give them so you give them a, a crisis scenario a, a start state of you know perhaps a, a cyber attack or something like that and then you ask them a question you know which team should be stood up now or how quickly should you inform the regulator or what's you know what's the first the top comms tasks that you need to undertake whatever these things are and of course the trick is that you use these um uh, polls and people have to vote on them so they're actually thinking and they actually have to do something and as soon as you know that that gets them involved in it but I always say as well but if you don't agree with any of these things um, any of these suggestions I make then you know in the we've got a Q&A box there just mm-hmm. pop it in the Q&A box if you think there's something else you should be doing and then I would as you know like I would always have someone on the the webinar and then we would discuss these things and so it becomes a sort of rolling decision 
discussion as well. And then you move on to the next section and you feed some more, you know, um, update into the crisis scenario. Yeah, it makes it much more interactive. And then yeah. also from your perspective as the moderator of the webinar, you know how many people are online, you know how many people are participating in the poll. And yeah. so that gives you a good sense of the, the level of engagement of your audience too. Yeah, and also, I mean, obviously, I can I monitor as someone who's running the webinar. I monitor the questions, so I don't to my panelists. I don't put every question, or I don't let them see them all because sometimes the questions are not relevant. Um, so yeah, it's just I just sort of filter that stuff out so the good questions get to the panelists. But is it's a good way of working. I, I, in fact, I'm about I'm going to do another one shortly. In fact, well, post it on LinkedIn, and uh, it's always worth you know, the time it's, it's always an interesting conversation. Yeah. And one of the things that I pride myself on, on the podcast is that I think I have very interesting guests. You also have very interesting yeah. guests. Right. I want to shift gears here a little bit because okay. I've known you, I don't know, Jim, four or five years, maybe, I don't know how long we've been doing I guess, diff yeah. different podcasts and stuff. And it wasn't until I started doing research for this episode that I learned something about you. So, oh, right. What, what's yeah, that? About? Well, I did not realize that you have been on a journey uh, uh, with dealing with prostate cancer. Ah, all right. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, well, that's uh, need a bit of resilience for that. That's for sure. <laughs> exactly. And we talk on the resilient journey, we talk about organizational resilience and, and business continuity, but we also mm -hmm. talk about personal resilience. And so, let me give you a compliment before I ask you to, to walk me through the journey. I think it's a compliment to you that I never knew that you had it. You know what I mean? But, like you didn't wear it on your sleeve per se. No, but having said that, well, that's true. And I, you know, normally I don't, I don't normally, normally address this at all when it comes to business because the one problem with cancer, you know, what the problem with cancer is you tell someone that you've got cancer and that person is going to think, oh, he's going to die very soon. Uh, and that's not true. Um, but obviously you don't really want to think about that if you're engaged with business with somebody, but um it's interesting you didn't know about it because I certainly haven't hidden it. That's for sure. Sure. Um, I, in fact, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer in 2017, and I thought, well, you know, it was, a, it was quite a shock. It wasn't great, but yeah. I've, you know, I've been a journalist. I'm a writer, and I thought, well, what are you going to do about this, Jim? And I thought, okay, well, you're going to write about it. So I actually started a blog. Um, called The Unwelcome Guest, which is still there. That's um, right. And I wrote about my prostate cancer. And in fact, uh, uh, a few couple of years ago now, an American website, uh, prostatecancer.net, got in touch with me because they like my writing. And I now write for the American website. And they allow me to just put a link on my website to theirs. I'm not allowed to take the whole article. So I don't write specifically for my um, website anymore. I write for this American website because they do great work in promoting um, uh, you know, uh, uh, cures for prostate cancer and the way people should handle them. They do all kinds of good work. And I write articles for them. And as I say, I put, put links on my website to, to their articles. So prognosis now is good. 
Yeah, I mean, you never know. I mean, yes, it is. I mean, I've so it's been five years now, and I've it's two years, almost two years since I've had any treatment at all. And I mean, I don't know how much we want to get into this, but um, my PSA level, it's a prostate antigen level, is going up slightly, but it's still well within tolerances and so forth. But I was on I was on hormone therapy and I was on radiotherapy, none of which I would recommend as a barrel of laughs but it does seem to have you know i i've i've you know i had this sort of i'm i'm part of what they call the ned squad the ned squad no evidence of disease i'm always some people sort of say that when they're like that oh i'm cancer free i've got over cancer and i'm like mm, okay possibly you have but maybe you haven't maybe it's just superstition on my part i understand but i i i i, I don't know but what i do is i so every six months i have have a test i i have a psa test and if that's still well within tolerances i'm fine and so what i do i just divide my life into six months blocks and which sounds bad but it really isn't it's fine and i just get on with my life for the next six months and i get a little bit jittery as we come to the test um so my next test is in in february so i'm sure at the beginning of february so i'll be a little bit jittery to see what my my figures are there but no it's okay but hang on i've just got to say one thing about this because i am slightly evangelical about this yep. is if you are close to 50 and you're male then please do get um, a prostate cancer check now this is difficult and this is one of the reasons that prostate cancer is such a problem is there are many cancers now where you can have like bowel cancer for example it's very easy to get a, a test on that and a lot of bowel cancer is picked up the problem with um prostate cancer is that it's uh it, it can be no symptoms until it gets really serious unfortunately with mine it was about to get serious but it didn't quite so they caught it while the cancer was still retained within the prostate pretty much and so it was treatable but uh, the important thing is is to get yourself checked um now I, mean, I remember i was 63 when i was i was um diagnosed and i remember saying to the doctor and i was kind of furious well i'm much too young to get prostate cancer what are you talking about fortunately the doctor didn't laugh because i was right in the sweet spot for getting it so wow. uh, yeah they, they and so go. when you talk about getting checked you're talking about prostate exam uh the first is the digital exam which is a doctor putting his finger up your bottom and checking your prostate to see if it's distended or not the second is having a psa um test the problem with the psa test it's a psa test is fine if you have a base level but if you don't know where you're starting from a P the psa test can be very not there can be a lot of false negatives false positives i mean my psa level was just over five when i was diagnosed and that's quite low and it would you'd, you'd be quite surprised actually that that you did have prostate cancer so but it's a mad number because some people have will have a psa level in their hundreds it'd be 200 or something wow. so unless you know where you are and then thereafter what they're developing now are mri scans to test you but up until recently mri scans have been quite expensive and you know and you know it takes up a bit of time and all that but so t tests are moving but uh, as i say do if you're a man and you know <laughs> and you're nearly 50 you should be thinking about these things because you catch this early it's fine you're going to be good if you don't then you could be in uh, for some trouble
All right, Jim, I'll get you out of here on this. Tell me about uh, the new album, Midnight Kitchen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we, we've, okay. this is going to be really quick because we're really moving away from resilience here. I'm also a musician, um, and I have a new album coming out tomorrow. So how about that? Nice. Um, it's, called, it's called Midnight Kitchen, and it will be on all the streaming services. Well, if it isn't, I'll be furious. No, it'll be on all the streaming <laughs> services tomorrow. It's called Midnight Kitchen. It's kind of bluesy, solely stuff that people of my age <laughs> like um so if you're expecting anything incredibly modern or up to the minute you're going to be disappointed but if you like sort of uh, some of those old bluesy solely songs then you'll get some of that it's my stuff there's a ray charles tune on there there's a tom waits tune on there and the rest is mine and it's got it's got some of the great musicians from of london on it and i think it's a cracking piece of work so <laughs> have, have a listen jim preen midnight kitchen it drops tomorrow that's it wonderful and uh you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna have some of that play us out jim thanks good. for doing this man i appreciate you so much all right good to talk with you Mark. bye now i want to thank jim preen for joining me this week on the podcast and a huge thanks to the resilience think tank for sponsoring the resilient journey music now from jim preen as we wrap up this episode so join us won't you as we continue our resilient journey Blues are gonna get you. 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 Blues are gonna get you.